Our scripture reading for this morning comes from 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 through 11. As you are able, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our afflictions, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. For we do not want you to be ignorant, brothers, of the affliction we experience in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. You also must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. These are familiar hymn lyrics to many of us. The song, It Is Well, is sung by us on a regular basis. And I think, as is probably common with most of us, we find encouragement in the words themselves. And we find ourselves coming back to this hymn uh, to find that source of strength and comfort. But I think as we come to this hymn, oftentimes I think we, we may approach it with actually a sense of ignorance about how profound these words actually are because of the context out of which they were written. This psalm, or sorry, this hymn, It Is Well, was written by a man named Horatio Spafford. And it may be important for you to know that this hymn, It Is Well, was written after a series of profoundly traumatic events in Spafford's life. Let me just give you a rundown of the context of this hymn. So the first thing that you need to understand is that Horatio Spafford was an investor. He owned a lot of property and had a lot of investments surrounding the city of Chicago in the 1800s. And in 1871, during the Great Chicago Fire, he lost a tremendous fortune. And in that same year, not only were his business interests completely cut short and cut off, but he lost his four-year-old son. Now, that would be reason enough to embrace this idea of suffering. 
But God continued to introduce suffering into Spafford's life because, as many of you may know, later on, as Spafford sought to begin to regain his wealth and invest back into Chicago as it was being rebuilt, there became uh, this opportunity in England for Spafford and his family to be involved in D.L. Moody's evangelistic campaigns. And so, out of a desire to serve God as he was seeking to rebuild his wealth, he sent his family along to go to England so that they could participate in what God was doing through Moody's ministry. And while his wife and their children, their three daughters, were on this ship sailing to England, that ship sank. And as I studied this, this man's life this week, it broke my heart because as Spafford sat waiting for his own passageway to England, he received a telegram from his wife that simply said, saved alone. And so Spafford traveled to meet his grieving wife. And while he was traveling, he came to the spot where the ship had sunk. And the captain pointed out where he believed it was. And it was in those moments that the words of the, of the hymn, It Is Well, began to take shape in Spafford's life. And we look at this man's tragic existence, and we think, what a wonderful, profound testimony of God's grace. Because as we consider the traumatic and difficult sufferings that we have in our own lives, we are often not drawn to the writing of hymns. We are drawn to painful questions and significant bouts of doubt. And this is what we see in the book of 2 Corinthians. You see, the Apostle Paul wrote the letters of 1 and 2 Corinthians to speak into a church that he had planted. In Acts chapter 18, Paul had gone into the city of Corinth and planted and established and encouraged those initial Christians in the city of Corinth. And as Paul moved on his missionary journeys, false apostles, those that Paul calls false apostles, made their way into the Corinthian church. And they started infiltrating and influencing these Christians with poisonous questions, questions that were meant to undermine Paul's authority and even question the message of the gospel that Paul had preached to them so that these false apostles could assert their triumphalism as the right and true expression of Christianity. And here's the poisonous question that they asked those in Corinth. They said, are you sure that God is actually with Paul? Because if God were really with Paul, why is he being persecuted? And why is he suffering so much? And that poisonous question worked, which is why we have first and especially second Corinthians, because now this church that is abandoning the gospel and abandoning Paul, Paul is actually writing this letter to explain why he is suffering. And as at a distance, we might be able to look at the Corinthians and admonish them for their confusion and their doubts. But I think the reality is, is that perhaps in the midst of our own suffering, we find ourselves asking that exact same question. If God is really with me, 
Why am I suffering so much? You see, when the Corinthians approached that question, or I should say, when the question was posed to the Corinthians, the way that it was framed was the idea of cause and effect. And so the question that is, why am I suffering, actually is meaning, what is the cause of my suffering? Is it that God doesn't see me? In my suffering? Is it that God doesn't hear me when I pray? Is it that God isn't willing to help me? Or that He isn't able to help me? And you can begin to hear how these questions can start to turn poisonous when we begin to ask Does God hate me? God isn't good, God doesn't exist. And just like the Corinthians, this leads us, this question leads us to doubt our connection with God and also the gospel itself. But Paul in this letter reframes that question, why am I suffering? Not to be focused on the cause of suffering, but rather to reframe it as why am I suffering? What is the purpose that God has brought this suffering into our lives. And that is what we're going to be looking at as we go into this letter, these first so odd verses in 2 Corinthians. So answer this question, why does God bring suffering into our lives? Or maybe to phrase it the way that we ought to be thinking about this. What is the purpose for the suffering that God has brought into our lives And as we dive in, would you please take a moment and pray with me? Gracious God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you've preserved this down to this very day for our encouragement and for our strength. We pray, Lord, that now as we turn our eyes to 2 Corinthians, that by your spirit you would be illuminating our hearts where we are doubtful and despairing, would you shine your light? Would you bring your balm? Would you comfort us in our affliction so that we might understand why you have made us to suffer so that we might glorify you and honor you in the lives that you have given to us? Be with us now in Jesus' name. Amen. So the first thing that the Apostle Paul says is God brings suffering into our lives so that we might find hope in him alone. I want you to notice if you go back to 2 Corinthians verses 8 through 10. First, I want you to notice in verses 8 through 10 that Paul is not approaching this conversation about suffering philosophically. Look in in verse 8. He is pointing to a very specific trial and a specific example of suffering. He says, the affliction that we experienced in Asia. And so Paul is coming at this thinking and meditating on a terrible experience that he had in his life. And so what could that have possibly been? Well, if you go to the book of Acts, and you especially go to Acts chapter 19, right after Paul had planted the Corinthian church, he made his way out of that city, by and large not experiencing a tremendous amount of opposition and persecution, but a tremendous amount of victory and overcoming of obstacles. And he makes his way into the city of Ephesus to plant a church there, 
And what he finds is something completely different. There's a man by the name of Demetrius, and this man incites a riot against Paul and Paul's companions. He turns the city against Paul because Paul has been pulling people away from worshiping that city's god, Artemis. And here's what it says in Acts chapter 19. The city of Ephesus was filled with confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Paul's associates. But when Paul wished to go into the theater among them, the disciples would not let him. And even some who were his friends sent to Paul and urged him not to venture into that theater. Because for about two hours, the crowd cried out with one voice, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. A riot broke out in Ephesus because of Paul's ministry. His companions were dragged by a mob into a theater. You can completely look at Paul's comments back in 2 Corinthians and understand why he would say we were utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Or to put it another way, Paul literally said to himself, I think we're going to die. And yet, both here and in Acts, Paul and his companions were delivered. And it's through this experience of being burdened beyond his strength and then being delivered by God's grace that Paul says he learned that God is the source. God is the source of mercy and God is the source of strength. He says, we learned that we should not rely on ourselves, but on God. I want you to jump back up to verse 3, because this is how Paul articulates it after his trial. He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. I want you to really hone in in verse 3 where Paul identifies God as the Father of mercies. And what's really important for you to understand about this is that what Paul is not saying in the Greek is that God is merciful. That is true, and we have plenty of passages, some that we quoted this morning in the call to worship, that tell us that a part of the way we can describe God in an adjective sense is we can say God is merciful. But that's not what verse 3 is saying. It actually says, God is the source of mercy. Thomas Akempis, in a book entitled The Imitation of Christ, kind of talks about it in this way. You need to refer all things to God in the first place, for he is the one who has given you all things. Think of everything as flowing from God, the highest good, as a spring to which all must be brought back. This was revealed to Paul when his experience of mercy dried up and he could no longer dictate the outcome of his circumstances. He recognized that he was not the source of mercy in his life. God, like a spring, like a fountain, was the source and is the source of mercy in our lives. But he's not just the source of mercy. He is the source of strength. If you go back to verse 3, Paul follows that up. He says, God is the Father of mercies, and he is the God of all 
comfort. It's that same Greek construction. He's the father of mercies. He's the God of all comfort. God is the source of strength. But what's important for us to understand as we read this word comfort is that we actually often misinterpret this, not because it's a bad translation, but because in our culture, when we think of comfort, we often think about it in therapeutic terms. We think to ourselves, if God were a God of comfort, then what that means is that God should always be bringing me relief from the pain that I'm experiencing. But that's not what the word comfort in the Greek means. It's the word parakaleo. It's two words together that mean come alongside somebody to encourage them and to strengthen them. That God is the source of your strength. Think about it this way. If you're running a marathon and you have somebody running alongside you, a personal trainer of sorts saying, you can do this. I am with you. You can keep going. That's the idea of parakaleo, of comfort in the Bible. And so as we look at this, we can understand what Paul is actually saying. I, Paul, have learned through my suffering not to rely on myself, but to look to God as the source, the fountainhead from which flows any mercy in my life. The fountainhead from which always is flowing strength for today. The theologian and teacher Dallas Willard uh, says it this way, You can be sure that God can always be found at the end of your rope. I think that is a great quote. So what does this mean for our lives? Well, I think it it forces us to ask the question, what hinders you, what hinders us from actually embracing this truth that God is the source of mercy and the source of strength. And I think Paul actually hits it right on the head when he says, through this trial, we've learned not to rely on ourselves. Pride is your biggest hindrance from receiving the strength and the mercy that God has for you in the midst of your trials. But why is this so pervasive? I mean, in one sense, right, the the continuing presence of sin nature in us will lead us to pride. But I think it might be more culturally deep than that. Because 52% of professing Christians, according to a 2017 Barna research poll, said that they believed that the sentence, God helps those who help themselves, was a verse in the Bible. 52%. One out of every two. Now, before we scoff and shake our heads and say, those silly people, they don't know what it means to be a Christian, where do you place your confidence in the midst of a trial? Where are you placing your confidence in the midst of your suffering? Is it in your health? Is it in your career or your talents and abilities? Or maybe it's in your network of friends and family members or your wealth, or your piety, or your, just yourself. I can do this on my own. I can make this happen for myself. If we're honest, we, we might actually be more like that 52% who believe that God helps those who help themselves than we care to admit. Instead, we should be leaning on Psalm 27 that says, 
Some trust in chariots and some trust in horses. We trust in the name of the Lord. We sing a song here uh, called, I Asked the Lord. It was written uh, by John Newton originally and then kind of put to music. And here's what John Newton's poem says. God says, these inward trials I employ from self and from pride to set thee free and break thy schemes of earthly joy that thou mayst find thy all in me. One of the reasons, Christian, that God brings you low in your suffering is so that he might fill you up. And we can look at Horatio Spafford's life and we can think, that's wonderful. I'm so glad that that happened in the life of a man in the 1800s. He is a wonderful hero of the faith. But that doesn't happen today. Well, it does happen today. It happens in our congregation. Our sister, Catherine Smith, in 1999 suffered a stroke, and it rendered her incapable of doing many things that she was exceptional at. And in 2014, after several years of suffering, the trial that was her stroke, she wrote a book called The Hidden Miracle. And I just want to read you what our sister, who's here with us today, wrote, reflecting on what God has shown her about being the source of mercy and the source of strength in her life. Above all, as I consider my life, Catherine says, I am thankful for Jesus. I desire to fear God and to put my hope in him at all times. He delights in those who depend on his power, and he loves to be the God of the poor and the needy. My prayer is that my story might point to the Lord God Almighty. He is good because that is his nature, no matter what the circumstances are. And he has shown himself strong on my behalf over and over. I pray that others might know Jesus as their Savior and see him at work in their own hearts and in their own lives. And that is the Apostle Paul's prayer as well. You look in verse 3 and you see not only is God the Father of mercies and comfort, he is chiefly the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. One could say the reason that we know that God is the Father of mercies and strength is because we've seen his Son. We have seen his Son come and bear our burdens, not so that we could find our own way, but so that we could find our life in Christ. And this is where Paul goes next. Look at verse 5. He says, For as we abundantly share, or share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. I want you to notice here that Paul's emphasis here is on our relationship with Christ. He says, you share abundantly in Christ's sufferings. You share abundantly in Christ's comforts. John Calvin articulated it this way. We must understand that as long as Christ remains outside of us, we are separated from him. And all that he has suffered and done for our salvation and for the salvation of the human race remains useless to us and of no value And therefore, to share with us what he received from God the Father, he had to not only become ours, but to dwell within us. 
The type of relationship that we have with Christ by faith is one of union. The Holy Spirit has united you to Christ so that Christ's life has actually become your life, Christian, both in his sufferings and in his comforts. Or to put it a different way, you have been given the great grace of sharing in Christ's cross and in his crown. I want you to look here. If you go back to verse 5, I'm sorry, to verse 8, I want you to notice how Paul reflects on this experience in Asia. And he says, we were utterly burdened beyond our strength. We despaired of life itself, and we felt that we had received the sentence of death. In the same way that Christ had received the sentence for, of death for our sins, Paul is seeing this play out in his own life. I know how Christ felt when he died for my sin. Later in Colossians, Paul says, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, church, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body that is the church. What Paul is saying in Colossians is not that our salvation is dependent upon our suffering for Christ. Christ suffered once and for all for your sins. But what he is saying is that those who are in Christ by faith should expect to suffer because you are united to a suffering Messiah. Here's how he says it in Galatians. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And if we're honest, if we stop there, that sounds pretty awful. A life crucified. A life defined by suffering and trial. But I want you to notice back in verse 4, Paul continues. Because if we are actually united to Christ, we not only share in his sufferings, but we're also guaranteed that we get to share in his comfort as well. And that comfort is chiefly expressed in the resurrection and in his ascension to glory. We not only share in Christ's cross, but because we share in Christ's cross, we also share in his crown. And I want you to notice in verse 9 that Paul says, That that trial was to make us realize that we should not rely on ourselves, but on God. And then look what he says. God who raises the dead. In the midst of his trial, he's realizing, oh my goodness, this is exactly what Christ promised us. That as we suffer and experience this cross, we are reminded that Christ died and Christ has risen. Because of God's mercy and God's strength. God delivered Paul and his companions out of Ephesus. But even if God had not delivered Paul and his companions from the riot in Ephesus, Paul would have still said, he will deliver us. And he will deliver us again. And he will deliver us again. 
in every trial and every moment of suffering in your life, God may bring you profound experiences of relief and strength and mercy. And you know what that is? It's called a foretaste. It is a foretaste of the resurrection comfort that is yours in him for all eternity. And to really embrace this, we have to actually adopt a new way of looking at the story of our life. Jerry Sitzer wrote a book called A Grace Revealed. And Jerry uh, was a man who uh, several years ago lost his mother, his wife, and a daughter in a car accident. And so he's written two books thinking through what does it mean to suffer as a Christian. And here's what Sitzer says. Sitting in the ambulance, I discover that the tragic story into which we have been thrust, this story has been enveloped by another story. This accident, however random, does not stand on its own or exist unto itself. It is part of a larger story. In that moment of suffering, I have no idea how it all connects. That is for me to discover in the future. But for now, in this painful silence, it is enough to know that there is a story that will make sense of my own. And it's not simply a story, it is the story. The story of creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. What is your opinion about the shape of your story? Because for Christians, our lives, the shape of our lives in Christ is not some progressive line going upward and upward and upward. The shape of our story is death and resurrection. Death and resurrection. In our lives, we are rehearsing the gospel. We are dying to ourselves and rising with Christ. And as that story of the gospel is told in our lives over and over and over again, not only will we find our hope in God alone, not only will we find our life in Christ, but Paul says in this letter, we will find strength for the sake of others. I want you to go to verse 4. This is Paul's kind of final application of this reality. And he says, God, the Father of mercies and the Father of comfort and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, that God comforts us in our affliction. He strengthens us in our affliction so that we may be able to comfort, to strengthen those who are in any affliction with the strength, with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted, strengthened by God. The, the logic is, is pretty obvious. As Pastor Mark says often, God does not comfort us to make us comfortable. He comforts us so that we might be comforters. That as God meets us in our suffering and gives us a foretaste of that resurrection comfort and strength, we can then in turn be mature in our faith, not for our own sake, but for the sake of other people. As you see your brothers and your sisters suffering in their own affliction, you can say 
not because you have the right answer, but because you have become the type of person that can sit and listen. You have become the type of person that can sit and understand from experience that God will deliver us and he will deliver us again. That's the type of strength that God wants to provide for his people through suffering for the sake of others. And what he wants to do is he wants us to find strength for the sake of unity. Look at verse 6. Remember, Paul and the Corinthian church are separated from one another. The Corinthian church want nothing to do with Paul. They're doubting that God is actually with Paul. And Paul's saying, I desperately want my brothers and sisters to realize how connected we are. He says, church, if, if we are afflicted, Paul and his companions, it is for your comfort and your salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. I want you to see how this idea of not only our union with Christ, but our union with one another in Christ, Paul says, that's why my hope for you is unshaken. I am confident that God is at work in your life because I have seen him at work in Christ and I have seen him at work in my own suffering as well. In another letter that Paul sent to the Corinthians, right, 1 Corinthians, Paul says it this way, if one member of the body suffers, all of us suffer together. And if one member is honored, all of us rejoice together. This is what it means to be a member of Christ's body. I love the way Dietrich Bonhoeffer articulates this. He says, God has willed it that we should seek and find his word in the witness of a brother, in the mouth of a man. Therefore, the Christian needs another Christian to speak God's word to him. He needs him again and again when he becomes uncertain and discouraged. For by himself, he cannot help himself without lying to his own conscience. He needs his brother to be a bearer and a proclaimer of the gospel of salvation. He needs his brother simply because of Jesus Christ. God ordains our suffering so that we might, by God's mercy and God's strength, become the type of people who are equipped to bear the burdens of other people and to proclaim the word of salvation with the voice of experience, and as a result of that, a voice of compassion. So how is this brought about in our church? Is it we give ourselves to getting involved in the lives of other people? Maybe. Paul doesn't actually go there. What Paul says is that the way that this unity is found is fundamentally through intercessory prayer. I want you to look in verse 11. The first place that Paul goes to answer the question, how do we bring about this type of unity between suffering saints? He says, you also must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessings granted us through the prayers of many. To pick up what Bonhoeffer says in his book, Life Together, this brings us to a point at which we hear the pulsing heart of the Christian's life. A Christian fellowship, a church, lives 
and exists by the intercession of its members for one another. If it lacks this, it collapses. Hear this. The most important book in this church is the Bible. The second most important book in this church is the church directory. As you look over God's word, you are reminded of Christ. And as you look at the church directory, you are reminded of who you are united to in Christ. Not in some vague and general way, but in the specifics. This is why it is very important that you pursue relationships with those who are here at Grace Church as fellow members one to another so that you might become the type of people that can be united to one another, not in some triumphalism, but as suffering saints pointing to Jesus. So, as it says in this passage, as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. Share abundantly your life with your brothers and sisters. It is so easy, especially in this age of social media, to look for community in a place that pretends to create community. True fellowship is found in sharing your life abundantly with others and being honest about your suffering and your struggle. And it also looks like sharing abundantly in the lives of others. Picking up the phone and listening. Going to your, on your knees and in prayer for others. That intercessory prayer will compel you to right action, not just rash action for the sake of others. Grace Church, God brings suffering into our lives so that we might find our hope in him alone. He brings suffering into our lives so we would find our life in Christ and that ultimately we would find the strength for others. But I want you to see how this passage ends, again in verse 11, and how it's echoed in verse 3. You also must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted to us through the prayers of many. And then Paul in verse 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why does God bring suffering into our lives? He brings suffering into our lives so that together, united in Christ and united to one another, we might ultimately glorify him together. This is the essence of Christian community. It is not in programs, it is in people. So that together, we might say, as it says in Psalm 46, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. No, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, we give you great thanks and praise for your compassion and your mercy toward us in Christ. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for suffering so much so that we might be united to you in the forgiveness of our sins and in the resurrection of our bodies. Remind us of our union with you this week. As we suffer, remind us of how we share in your sufferings. And as we experience relief, remind us of this foretaste of the resurrection. And draw us, those who are not in the midst of suffering, to give ourselves to prayer for the sake of our brothers and sisters so that we might suffer with them and that we might be comforted with them. Be with us as your people and thank you for gathering us together this morning to hear your word. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.